As we turn this morning to Psalm chapter 33, I hope you just sang to him because we are commanded to do so. Psalm 33 is one of only four in the first book of Psalms, that is the first 41 chapters, that does not have a superscription identifying either the author or the occasion for its writing or both. However, it is a praise psalm. It is containing universal truths about God's character and works that shows that he is praiseworthy and that we should be singing praise to him. So now hear this psalm of praise. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. As we consider these words about the Lord and about his being worthy of praise, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us understanding in your word this morning. May your spirit be upon us to open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand your word. Lord, I pray that as we consider who you are and what you have done, You would remind us not only of what has happened in the past, but what is happening in the present and what you have promised to happen in the future. Encourage us by these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, I don't know when this psalm was written. I don't know who the author is. None of us seem to at this particular point in time. God knows. We know that in the end, these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit written down for our benefit and for God's glory. Perhaps, however, it might have been written in a time 
when some of the reigns of the kings of Judah were taking place, and I began to think this morning in particular about one of those kings. You see, the people of Judah experienced wonderful things in the reign of good Jehoshaphat. But the problem was, after Jehoshaphat died, they suffered under 33 years of the wicked son and grandson of Jehoshaphat. When future King Jehu of Israel assassinated the wicked king of Israel, he also assassinated the wicked grandson of Jehoshaphat by the name of Ahaziah. And when Ahaziah died in Judah, his mother, Athaliah, took the throne. She began a cruel reign of terror by killing off all of the other royal family except for her grandson, Joash, who was rescued by his aunt. The people may have placed their hope in young King Joash. He was just a boy. And as he was rescued, good priest Jehoiada had come and had him, that is Joash, set as king over the people, much to the chagrin of Athaliah. And people may have placed their hope in young Joash. And as long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash was a good king. The people also may have placed their hope in the priesthood because Jehoiada was a righteous priest. He was someone who was following God's law. And as long as Jehoiada lived, the kingdom flourished in the morality of the law. The problem was, if we placed our hope in Jehoiada, we place our hope in someone who dies. Jehoiada died. And once he died, unfortunately, if they placed their hope upon King Joash, as soon as Jehoiada died, Joash changed his life for the worse. And he no longer followed the ways of David, his forefather. Instead, he led the nation into further wickedness. And sin. You see, we can place our hope in people. We can place our hope in ourselves. But this chapter reminds us that as believers, we place our hope in the Lord, in Jehovah or Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so in this passage, we're reminded, first of all, of our duty and privilege and joy to just praise the Lord. But then it gives us many reasons to do so. Depending on what commentator you read, it may be two, three, or four different reasons. But we praise the Lord because he's due praise. Praise is due the Lord of the word. Praise is due the Lord of the nations. And praise is due the Lord of his people. First of all, just the fact that we are commanded... We are not encouraged, we are not exhorted, we are commanded to praise the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, all you, O you righteous. Now I would gather to say that there are some sitting here in our sanctuary this morning, whether you want to call us frozen chosen Presbyterians or whatever, I bet there are some of you who have never shouted to the Lord. This is a command in scripture. At some point in your life, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. You know, I think we would be embarrassed to do that out in the world, wouldn't we? Many of us. 
And yet this is a command. It's a joy and a duty of the righteous. In fact, it says praise befits the upright. Now some of us get the idea that the only part of worship is music and praise. That's not the only thing we do in worship. In fact, in our culture and society, our young people in churches and in colleges and in other places are taught that worship is just music. However, music plays a very important role in worship. Worship, of course, includes prayer and preaching and confession and all those other elements that are in there. But here the reason to make music is given. Why are we to shout for joy? Why are we to give thanks to the Lord? Why are we to make melody to him? Why are we to sing him a new song? Yes, those are all imperatives in these first three verses. It doesn't say, okay, if you want to, just at the right moment when the spirit is right and filling you, then maybe you might actually sing a note or two. No, it says over and over, do this, do this, do this, do that. And why should we do that? Well, first of all, this reason to make music comes with accompaniment. Now, this should make our worship team happy because they accompany us every Sunday. But we also understand this is not for just anyone to make that accompaniment. It is for the righteous to do that, those who are believers. In our day and age, we think music is so important in worship that so often we hire people to do that, even unbelievers. Let it not be so. This is unfit for those who would not believe in the Lord Jesus to lead the congregation in worship. This is for the righteous and the upright. And the righteous and the upright are not righteous and upright based on their own merits. They're only righteous and upright by believing in Jesus Christ and having that imputed to them. So we make music with accompaniment. We also do it with a new song. Yes, we are by and large in this church traditionalists. Someone calls up and asks, what kind of worship style do you have? And we'll say, well, we are mostly traditionalists. We sing hymnody and psalms. But we also should be singing new songs. Of course, some will say, trying to say that there is no place for new songs, will say, well, this means fresh, just fresh, and something that reminds us of the glory and grace of God. But here the word, I think, really is new. There is a place here for new songs, too. And so here we play skillfully on the instruments to sing a new song to praise the Lord. We praise him in part simply because we are righteous. That is, simply because God has taken our sin away and given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's funny. One of my sons went for a job interview yesterday. And you know how it used to be in job interviews, they would ask you all about your character and about the things that uh, would qualify you to serve in that particular job and all those types of things. But it's interesting, there's an element that takes place in job interviews now, particularly with young people. They say one of the requirements for the job is to have fun. I wish every job I had was fun. It wasn't. I remember one time sitting or standing by a conveyor belt watching sunflower seeds going by and they were all supposed to be shelled and I was supposed to pick out every little piece of shell or fuzz or something that wasn't supposed to be there. I have to say that was not fun. 
Alan Ross says about this particular passage, a believer without praise is like a person dressed improperly for an occasion. Praise is becoming, is suitable or fitting. This word befits is fitting or suitable. Praise is suitable for the upright. Even sometimes when we don't feel like praising God, if we understand who God is and what he has done, we should be praising God. And in case we don't understand why, here are some of the reasons. First of all, praise is due the Lord of the word. You might notice in verses 4 through 9, the, the word word is repeated several times. The Lord of the word has a character who is flawless. Because the word of the Lord itself is upright. He has an upright word. In other words, there's nothing wrong with it. It does not contain moral flaws or errors. It is not something that is not becoming of the creation. It is upright. Then the next phrase in verse 4 says, all his work is done in faithfulness. He has faithful works. In other words, when we look at the character of God, we understand there is no flaw in him, no error. But also we see his faithfulness. In fact, when we're reading through the Psalms, as we've been doing for a while now, we understand that over and over and over again, the psalmists remind us from David to other psalm writers are reminding us of the faithfulness of God. He is covenantally faithful to his people, even to a fault, we might say. He is faithful. And look at what God loves. God loves righteousness. You know, sometimes we as human beings, what do we love? Filth and sin and the pleasure of it. But he loves righteousness. He loves what is right and pleasing in his eyes. And he loves justice. Not necessarily the justice and what the world thinks of as justice, but true justice. The justice that he has described that has judgments that are without error. There is nothing that we can say before God but that he is just and wise. He has love for righteousness, love for justice. His word is upright. His works are faithful. And then it says, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This, of course, is that famous Hebrew word, hesed, which I often have in your outlines. It is that word which reminds us that God is covenantally faithful with his people. And it says the earth is filled with it. Why does the believer Praise the Lord, because God's character is so amazingly flawless, upright, faithful, love for righteousness and justice, overflowing with covenant faithfulness. What better reason is there to praise the Lord? But not only that, he's also praiseworthy as the Lord of the word, because that very word made the universe. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In case you don't believe the words of Genesis 1 and 2, in case you don't believe those words that when God spoke, it came to be, this psalm reinforces that concept, that concept of ex nihilo, 
Out of nothing, God created by the mere spoken word. Let it be so. And notice the participation here. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The word breath, if you know, in scripture, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, can also mean spirit. By the spirit of his mouth, by the word of the Lord, he has done this. This is triune participation in the creation. Jesus is the word incarnate. By the power of Christ, we're told in the book of Colossians, by the power of Christ, all things were made and all things hold together. God himself spoke and it was so. The spirit hovering over the waters, the breath of his mouth, all the host of heaven by that breath, by that spirit were made. And then it says in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Now what in the world is he talking about here? I think he's saying here that he brought order out of chaos. You see, if you know anything about the sea, you know that it is chaotic. You can't control it. You don't know what will happen from one moment to the next. This was particularly so in the days before weather forecasts and before uh, satellites looking at the earth and the motion of the winds and the clouds and all those different things. And even today, they can't predict the worst of the storms and how bad they're going to be and what direction they're going to go. We live at the beach. You know what it is when the hurricane is predicted to come. How often are they 100% accurate? Zero percent of the time. In fact, when, you're, when you live here long enough, you recognize that when they say, well, here's the path of the hurricane, you're going to say, well, just wait. On December 26, 2004, just before 8 a.m. local time, an earthquake struck in the ocean depths off the coast of Indone- Indonesia, Sumatra. It was a massive quake registering over nine on the Richter scale. What followed was unimaginable. Massive tidal waves or tsunami up to 30 feet high hit all over the Indian Ocean Basin surrounding that earthquake and killed over 227,000 people on one day in 14 countries. One of the worst natural disasters that the world has ever known. You ever wonder why folks historically fear the water? He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. You see, God could orchestrate or allow such things to happen at any moment. Right now, if he designed, he could have an earthquake in the Atlantic Ocean that would cause a massive tidal wave to come on Myrtle Beach. By his word, the ocean depths revealed land. By his word, the waters can be released to terrible and terrifying destruction. The word of the Lord is to be feared. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You see, awe and fear are the right response to understanding the character and nature and power of the word of God. 
And of course, this last section, verse 9 of this section, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. A word, the word of God alone was required. It didn't take God and something else. It didn't take God and primordial goo. It didn't take God and some alien power of the universe. It was merely by God speaking his word that all things were created and all things have stayed in place. Praise is due the Lord of the word. The praise is also due the Lord of the nations. It's already said that all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. One of the reasons why is in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Really, the psalmist is asking whose counsel or whose plans can stand? Well, unlike the counsel of the nations, here's how it describes God's counsel. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. You know, there's a lot of plans going on right now in our country and around the world. I just read about the plans in Colorado where the governor signed into law several plans, including shielding those who mutilate children or murder babies from any legal prosecution. Even criminalizing the distribution of the abortion reversal pill. So if you were to give someone who had taken chemical drugs to kill their baby a pill to reverse the effects of that chemical death, you could be liable for persecution. However, if someone else were to participate in mutilating the body of a young person, they would be out of jail free. It's not just our leaders either. There were plans in Louisville, Kentucky for the third time in just a short period of a murder to take the lives of others with a mass shooting. And last night in little Dadeville, Alabama, population 3,000 or so, there was someone who shot up a bunch of teenagers at a birthday party in a dance hall. People make plans. We were told that the mass shooting in Nashville, the person who uh, did this particular thing, planned out in great detail how they were going to go out and take the lives of children and teachers. We have nations that are planning to take over nations. If you haven't been following, China is more and more trying to take over Taiwan and get the support of nations around the globe. We have one nation's leader trying to take another nation in Ukraine. It happens all over the world. Plans of this or that. But what does it say will happen to the plans of man? God will bring them to nothing. But God's plan shall stand forever. And in case you missed it, verse 12 tells us a part of that plan. Sometimes we read that verse and we want to apply it to America. It doesn't work that way. This particular verse was particularly referencing the nation of Israel when these words were written. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Was it that they were passing the right laws? Was it because they had the right leaders? Was it because 
by and large, they were morally upright as opposed to all the other nations around them? What was it that made them blessed because God was their Lord? It's because his election of Israel brought a blessed state. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. There wasn't anything in them. They weren't better than the other nations. In fact, what did they want? They wanted a king like all the nations around them. What did they want? They wanted idolatry like all the nations around them. They wanted to participate in immorality like all the other nations around them. But they were blessed because of their God who is righteous and faithful and covenantally faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness. You see, the plan of God is in part that he would choose a people unto himself. And of course, now we know on this side of the cross, it wasn't just the people biologically descending from Abraham. It was the people of faith. Now blessed are the people he has chosen as his heritage, people like you and me, Jew or Gentile, who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed is the church whom he has loved and sent his son to die for. Why? Because they're a wonderful people? They were better than all the rest? They were better than the shooter planning to take lives in Nashville? They were better than the the government in the states that are putting into code the killing of children? What is it? No. It is because he has chosen them. By his grace and his love, his faithfulness, his plan is to take a people unto himself, and when they recognize he is their God, they are blessed. You see, his throne, his throne shall reign over all. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. You see, just as God's counsel shall stand, so his throne shall prevail. Despite the plans of all the nations, we look at Psalm 2. And it says that all the kings of the earth plot against God. Our leader is. The leader of nations overseas are. The leaders of just about every nation on the earth, with perhaps a few exceptions, right now are plotting against the holy nature of God. And are plotting against the people of God and want their own way, and they want their own pleasures, and they want their own wealth, and all of those things, without any strings attached. But God will have his way. He sees it all. I've been told there are now cameras at the traffic lights. Right on 17. I don't know what they're being used for. There are good things or bad things about that. They're bad if you run the red light. They're bad if they malfunction and give you a ticket when you didn't run the red light. They're good when your son gets hit by another car and the uh, video reveals that it was the other guy's fault. That happened to us. But God already sees all things. 
lest we fear the observation of man, I bet we should know that God sees all. He observes everything and everyone. When it says he's enthroned looking down on the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of all of them observes all their deeds. It's not just that he sees what we're doing, he also sees the motivations and the reasons behind it. Unlike a traffic camera that cannot determine why we might go through a red light or why we might stop at a red light or why one vehicle hits another, he sees the motivations of our hearts. He observes everything because he is the sovereign God. And here's one of his observations. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Whew, four different ways to say the same thing, isn't it? The king might think his hope rests in his military power. He might think that the warriors that he has are worthy of his hope, He might think that if he has more engines of power in the war, whether it's a war horse in the days that this was written with chariots or whether it's the tanks and the nuclear weapons of today, that there are hope to be saved from trouble. But these great mighty things cannot save. The might of the world is a false hope. The might of the world in our country means a big military It also means a big government. It also means the right people in the right places with the right votes. We might think that if we get all of those things all together, then we will once again retain our superpower status indefinitely and that all the world will look to our country as the leader of the free world, as the military or policemen of the world intervening to give right and good and freedom and good things to all the world. And we would be wrong. God is the Lord of the nations. He is the one that can rescue and save and spare. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. What does the world place its hope in? All of those other things. What do the people of God place their hope in? the covenant faithfulness of the God who chose them out of the world. There is nothing in them. There is nothing in their power, nothing in their might, nothing in the blessings that God has given us, nothing in political realm, nothing that can truly save us from the things and consequences of sin in this world. But those who hope in his steadfast love we are reminded that God the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is the Lord of his people. His eye is on us. What a description. You know that one of our first children's catechism questions is this. The answer is God does not have a body like men. And yet we use those anthropomorphisms all the time in poetry and in scripture. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Now what is that saying? Obviously we're not saying God has either plucked out his eye and thrown it on top of us. 
or that uh, he's, he's literally has his eye on us. This is a euphemism for saying he's looking out for us. He cares for us. And notice how it describes us. We're those who fear him. We're not just those who rejoice in him and have joy in him and and just fall over in warm fuzzies because of how warm and fuzzy God is. We are those who fear him because we recognize he's the God who made everything by a mere word. He's the God who destroys and frustrates the plans of the wicked. He is the God whose counsel shall prevail. And in the end, the only ones who will stand in his presence are those who are saved by his election of grace bestowing his favor on them, not because of their worthiness, but because he loved them. And they are the ones who hope in that steadfast love. Notice what they're hoping in. They're not hoping in military might. I'm saying that as a future army dad. They're not hoping in a political upheaval to have the right politicians in office. They're not hoping in a justice system that is so blind everything would be fair from a human perspective. They're not hoping in wealth and riches to cover up all our infirmities. They're not hoping in an escape to escape the reality of a life that's difficult and hard because we live in a sinful world. Their hope is in God's faithfulness to them. Then we understand He may deliver our soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We rely on his deliverances, his rescues. From Hagar's cry in the wilderness, when she left her mistress out of the circumstances of what had taken place in the house of Abraham, and she cried out to God, and he listened. To those in modern-day South Sudan and the Tigray region of Ethiopia who are facing great famines where hundreds, if not thousands, of people might starve to death. God sees his people facing starvation or death. The first phrase of verse 19, I think, is a reminder that he's delivering our soul. He's not just sparing us for this life. He's delivering our spare From death and destruction, he's delivering our soul from uh, life and destruction. But he also can deliver us in the moment. Who do we cry to in times of difficulty? Yes, it is practical for us at times to cry for those who can help us practically on a practical level. But that is because God might place them in our path. God is the one who rescues. Our place of hope is in him. Because his holy name is trustworthy. Verse 20 says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. His holy name is trustworthy. Why is his name trustworthy? When Moses said, well, who should I tell the people, your people, Israel? Who who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, tell him, The Lord, I am, or I am who I am, has sent you. 
This was the name, the covenant name of God. It was a name that should have struck upon their ears and understanding that this is the God who is making them a nation to be for him. This was the God who is delivering them out of Israel. But this was also the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He had a track record. He was someone that was covenantally faithful despite their unfaithfulness. He was the God of Abraham who lied about his wife and practically gave her away to the enemy. He was the God of Isaac, who as far as we know, the best thing he ever did in life was dig wells. He was the God of Jacob, who said in Bethel, I did not know, God, that you would even be here. And the God of Jacob... The man who spent most of his life depressed because he thought his son was dead. And yet God made him into a great nation. He is the faithful God. He is trustworthy. They trust in his holy name. And they trust in this way. They trust with eager expectation. Our soul waits for the Lord. We Americans don't like to wait. I don't like to wait in line. I don't like to wait at the four-minute traffic lights down on 501 to get off of Carolina Forest Boulevard. I don't like to wait in the doctor's office, let alone waiting for God to do something. I want God to frustrate the plans of those who would mutilate our children. I want God to frustrate the plans to promote a society where death is preeminent. I want God to frustrate the plans of those who think that somehow we can save the world by doing a bunch of silly things. I want all of this, and I want it now. And yet, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield for our protection Our help, our shield, these things are those things that protect us. When we go out into the world, we think if we just don't say the right, the wrong things, you know, uh, our parents or grandparents would tell us, don't talk about taxes, don't talk about politics or religion with people. That's directly contrary to the word of God. We're supposed to talk about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're supposed to talk about the God of heaven and earth. We're supposed to talk about these things on one hand because we rejoice and praise him. Don't think that he's saying this, just do it on Sunday morning for an hour with other people with like beliefs. This is something we're supposed to do all the day long. He also isn't telling us don't talk about these things because you might offend somebody. Because scripture reminds us he uses the church, not the church worship service, the church, the people. He causes the people to go out and tell others the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ so that others can be saved, which is more loving. To refuse to talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ and watch that person go to hell? Or to talk to them about Christ, even if it might mean a strained relationship because you love them so much, you want to see them go to heaven? We've got it all backwards. You see, our heart is glad not in peace and comfort and prosperity. Our heart is glad in the Lord. Because we don't trust in having a life of comfort and ease. 
We trust in the Lord, who we have been told will bring division in families, divisions in communities, divisions in homes. Verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Would we really ask that if all we had was peace and prosperity? We ask that because this life is so difficult because not only are we battling ourselves with our desire to sin, but we are battling with the world around us that is closing in and plotting against God. Let your steadfast love, Lord, be upon us because this life is so difficult. It is so hard. The consequences of sin close us in. The ravages of disease make us suffer. But more than anything else, seeing a society and a place and even family members who are opposed to God and his will reminds us that we need a God who is faithful. Even as we hope in you. You see, his steadfast love, his hesed will be upon believers. That is our crying hope. You see, this psalm is not just telling us why we should praise the Lord. It's commanding it. Shout for joy. Praise. Give thanks. Sing a new song. Why? Because of who God is and what he's done. He's not just talking about the sovereign God of all creation who saves his people. He's talking about the God who has called us and chosen us. And because he has done that, we place our hope in him, not anything else. If I were to say, what is the state of the American church today? Why is it struggling? Why does it seem to be declining? Why all these things? It's because God is exposing us. He's exposing many churches and preachers and followers of Christ for frauds. Because they don't really want Christ. They want all the benefits they can get by being in Christ. They don't really want the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. They want the God who can give them riches and comfort and prosperity and ease. And he's exposing this. Our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is in the Lord of the universe who created all things and has called a people unto himself. We hope in you, Lord. I hope that's as convicting to you as it is to me because I want those things. I want not to have problems during the week. Sometimes my prayer in the morning is let everything go hunky-dory for all my family members. Let me not have any bad experiences because I don't like them and I don't want to experience them. Let everything in life just go well and cheesy because then I can tell everybody how wonderful my family is, how wonderful my church is, how wonderful everything is going in my life. And when they ask the question, how are you, I can say I'm just fine. But our hope is not in that. Our hope is in the God of scriptures who will come to judge the world and the righteous based on his election and the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon us. Those individuals will get that time of comfort and prosperity and ease in heaven. But those who are not in Christ, who have not placed their hope and trust in him, those who are placing all of their eggs in the baskets of the world and love the world, they will receive eternal punishment. We hope in the Lord. Let's pray.
Father, forgive me for the times so often when I want your benefits without your plans. I want the prosperity and ease without your discipline. I want, Lord, all the good things despite all my bad things. Lord, I pray that you will help me to hope in you. Help all of us in this room to place our trust and hope in you and that we might praise you with joy, shouting shouts of praise to you, singing new songs and praising your name.